Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 14, please. Stories are so very powerful that folks in the world understand this. I don't read books on leadership much. Some people love them. I was at a pastor's conference last year when some men that I respect recommended a book on leadership that I knew I would never buy because it was expensive and I wouldn't spend my money on books on leadership, except I have a favorite little used bookstore and I happened to find it. So for a couple of dollars, I I bought it. And what's interesting is in this book, I happened to notice that they were talking about storytelling as a leadership technique. It kind of goes on and on, but it basically says that when a leader's message is important, how it's framed is critical. The process by which it's communicated is just as significant. How we educate and how our messages are communicated have much to do with whether what we say will be remembered, endorsed, and followed. Two streams of research, the writers say, support and explain the greater impact of stories and by extension metaphors and analogies over rational discourse. First comes in the field of speech communications where research shows that stories excite the imagination of the listener and create um, consecutive states of tension and tension release. And listeners are not passive receivers of information, but are triggered into a state of active thinking as they puzzle over the meaning of the story and attempt to make sense of it, typically in reference to our own experiences and situations. Second studies from, so, uh, by the way, he says, because this process is so engaging, it fosters listeners' attention and holds their interest, which, of course, we hope to do today. Second, studies from social psychology explain why rhetorical devices like stories and analogies and metaphors are a persuasive, effective means of communicating ideas, statistical summaries, facts, policy statements, because they're typically abstract and bland, lack impact, and are treated as uninformative. In contrast, stories and analogies and metaphors have substantial impact on decision making. And then to make his point. He tells a story. That's a good book on leadership. And one of the things that they don't neglect is to say, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to really use storytelling. Now I have a question for you. Who is the leader of all leaders ever? Is it not the Lord Jesus Christ? And was he not one who told stories? The answer is yes, he did. I heard Dr. Greer this week, our former pastor, Dr. Greer, going way back. This man, if you talk about him, you think, well, he's an intellect. He's a teacher. He went from here, which he said was one of his favorite places in the world to be, pastoring this church to Cedarville University College and was a teacher there and an interim pastor of a bunch of different places. Then he went to Grand Rapids and he helped to train uh, teachers. What a brilliant man. But he talked twice and told one big Long story. The entire message was one big story. It was a weighty story. It was the story of redemption, well told, very well told, stirringly told. It's a narrative. That's what he did. He told the story of redemption. I've been asked a number of times to go places to talk about storytelling. And I'll talk to you about that just a little bit here before I get into the stories, three stories, a cluster of stories that Jesus told. 
If you're a leader, you should be a storyteller. If you are one of our Sunday school teachers, you must be a storyteller. Much of the Bible is in the form of stories. And you should supplement those stories with stories of your own, which the Bible calls testimonies. They're your stories. Or stories of others, which the Bible calls testimonies. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you want to be effective at it, and a WANA leader or a Sunday school teacher, you want to learn to tell stories well. You want to use storytelling. If you're a regular teacher, like in any place, you want to teach anything. Obviously, if you're a parent, you're a leader, you're a teacher, you want to be able to tell stories. This is just something that is a good example in the Bible. That's what Jesus did. If you want to influence and if you want to inspire then I would suggest that you use stories. Now you say, well, I'm not a storyteller. Well, that's what I'm talking to you about. You ought to be a storyteller. Some of you say, I never will be a storyteller. Well, don't be so sure about that. A lot of people are not self-conscious storytellers. Like, for instance, in my family, when my wife sometimes will come in from when she's out taking pictures or shopping, whatever, and it's one story after another. And she's very good at it. These are vivid stories filled with emotion, very interesting. And yet, if I said to you, Lois, are you a storyteller? She would say, absolutely not. But she is. Last night, the children came back, or the night before, a couple of my children came back. They had an incident that they recounted to me. And they both were there. Two people were there, and they, were, and they had a little difference in the story. And so they're both just like on to- walking, talking over each other, telling us the story. If we just said, are you storytellers? They would have said, no. But we almost got hit. And the guy came up from behind, and he slammed on his brakes, and somebody hit him from behind, and then he swerved off to the side. I'm like, what are you doing? You're telling a story. And they are very, very powerful. I believe that if you want to witness to people, you cannot lead anybody to the Lord without a story. You can't do it. Because it requires the story of the gospel. And if you take the story of the gospel and do violence to it, and you force it into like a series of propositional statements, then you're doing something that Jesus didn't do. You're doing something that the gospel writers didn't do. They never took the story of the gospel and ripped it out of its context and forced it into linear kinds of constructions. They told it living as it is. It's a story. It has drama. It has characters. It has tension. And, uh, and, and so that's what we want to do. We want to be like that. You say, well, I'm not really all that good at storytelling. Well, then, by all means, use metaphors or similes or vivid descriptions. Make it concrete. Make it interesting. Never allow yourself to be confused that there's something especially orthodox about teaching that's stripped of all concrete elements and only deals in distant abstractions. Don't, Don't think, well, I'm really orthodox because I don't just tell stories. Well, if you don't tell stories, you're not like Jesus, because he did. And when I candidated here, the pulpit committee asked me about this, and I remember telling them that I tell stories. And I remember one of them, did somebody just throw a paper clip at me? Something just hit me. Like, that's interesting. It's like I hit in the head with a paper. Who did that? Are you guys up there? You're trying to get attention? Who did this? Come on. That's an invitation. You come forward. Admit who you are. I'm going to be watching you guys more. Tom, is this just another one of your antics there? All right. Now I'm going to keep an eye on you guys. So I knew that you would, I knew that you wouldn't all agree, but I didn't expect to be pelted with objects about this. But, 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 but concrete descriptions, pieces of story, testimonies 
They're like, they're like what my mother did to me one day. One day when I was in junior high, I got to where I thought I could talk to my mother kind of in a way I hadn't talked to my mother before. We're sitting at the table. I remember this very specifically. And I, I said something kind of sharp to my mother. And my mother took her iced tea and threw it in my face. How's that for a concrete, vivid description of something? Ice cold, iced tea. And my mother only did this one time. I know she deeply regrets it. She will listen to this podcast in a few hours, I'm sure. And I will hear about this. I love you, Mom. But she got my attention. She got everybody's attention. I remember my dad coming in the room going, what happened? And she's just like shaking her head, Kenny. And he goes, oh. You know, it just like made perfect sense to him then. Using concrete descriptions and telling stories. Jesus used it like a shot of cold iced tea in the face. The pulpit committee, you thought I was going to forget about that. The pulpit committee were talking. And one of the members of the pulpit committee said to me when I was talking to them about storytelling and the use of stories. They said, do you ever run out of stories? That's a great question, which I think there was a question. Behind, do you remember saying that to me, Mike? The question behind that, the question behind that, I think, might have been, are you going to tell the same stories over and over again? Right? Because, I mean, it's like you heard old evangelist comes to town and he breaks out his old chestnut. And you're like, I heard this one before. This is not good. And, of course, the answer to that is yes and no. There's some stories that we're supposed to tell. Over and over again. Certainly, the stories of Jesus need to be repeated and, and just enjoyed. Our own stories, well, they're not on the same level at all. And so we should be really careful about repeating them. But yes, we are. Part of those stories are told over and over again because they become kind of our working theology. This is what we believe. The story of this church should be told repeatedly. We should tell it to our children what God has done in this place. There are stories about this church we want to retell over and over again. But we're, we won't run out of stories as long as we're alive and we're breathing because we're living in a story. We're writing a story. This is what the Bible says. That you are not just a, a, a person, you are a character in a drama. And it's best if you see yourself as a character in a drama. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says two times there in chapter 11, which is all full of stories of people. The writer of Hebrews says, these obtained a good report, which is kind of a veiled way of saying their lives made good reading. Will your life make good reading? Are you, do you see yourself as a character in a drama, as a part of a bigger drama of redemption, and where you are written into that story? This is the romance, if ever there was a romance. This is an adventure, if ever there was an adventure. This is a mystery, if ever there was a mystery. This is a drama. It's an epic story. And you are in it. And you will answer to God for the role that you played in that drama. That is how you want to see your life. Will your life make good reading in the end? Is it a good story? story and what what character what role are you going to play in that psalm 78 says that about the lord jesus and i want you to notice that jesus was the kind of person would come along and he would be drawn into various different social settings and he always had something he had an agenda where he was going literally where he was going and literally what he was doing frequently he would introduce not just one story, but often he would introduce a cluster of stories. Frequently, Jesus would tell three stories. And this is just kind of like 
It's a little hobby of mine if you haven't figured this out. We're not going to talk about it forever, but we are going to talk about it from now until Thanksgiving if the Lord allows me to do this. We're going to keep talking about this. After Thanksgiving, we'll stop talking about it, talk about something else, talk about Thanksgiving, talk about Christmas. So we have Christmas stories to tell. But anyway, for now, for now, what we are going to do, though, is we're going to look at how Jesus told stories and why. And it's interesting that Jesus, Jesus often told stories in clusters of three in ascending weight or in ascending importance. In other words, it looks kind of innocent how he introduces a little story right here and we're all kind of smiling and it's just like an after dinner talk and the next story is a little heavier and the third one is like the, the big whammy. It really packs a wallop. It packs a punch. This happens in Luke chapter 14. It happens big time in Luke 15. And everybody knows the story Jesus told in Luke 15. It's one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told and you should read them. The next three weeks, we're going to study the three stories that he told in Luke 14. And someday we'll go back again and we'll look at the three stories Jesus told in Luke 15. But I think to, as a key of understanding that what Jesus is really saying on the love, on the first level, you look at it and you think it might be just like almost like table etiquette that he's teaching. You know, you guys need to be more polite when you come to the table. You know, it looks like that. He's just teaching table etiquette. But And if you took the first story alone, and that's all you saw, you might come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying, would you guys please try to behave when you come to the table? But the story doesn't stand alone. It's an ascending weight with three other stories. And by you get the you get to the end, you see that it really packs a punch. It, it really kind of goes, it's ice tea in the face kind of a thing. Jesus did not just tell little happy stories, myths to entertain people. He grabbed people by the throat. He threw ice water in their face. He went directly at circumstances with these stories. It wasn't necessarily that he always would speak harshly to them, though sometimes he did. Sometimes he could speak very quietly a little bit of a subtle story that would be ice cold water in the face. And I think that's exactly what happens if you understand the setting and the story and the central truth of the first of these stories in Luke 14 that we're going to see today. I want to begin by just reading this, Luke 14, 1, and we'll read through Luke 14 and uh, verse uh, 14, realizing that we're not reading the last story, which is in Luke 14, verses 15 through 24, because of its length and importance. We're going to save it for later. I'm going to read the first two stories in the setting. So think like this if you want to kind of arrange your thinking. Number one, think of the setting here. Let's get the setting. And number two, the story. What are the basics of the story? And then number three, if you will, what's the central truth of this? All right, here we go. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Now, it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. They watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. He was all swelled up with edema. It's a bad disease. Verse 3, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Which is interesting. He answers, but he must be answering an implied question or a question that's not given to us in a text because it doesn't say they ask anything. But they had created this setting on purpose. 
Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. His fame was going before him. He was well known as a very persuasive teacher and storyteller. They invited him to dinner to watch him. And I believe they invited this sick man who normally would not be there on the Sabbath just to put Jesus in a situation where he could lose some of his popularity. Because don't kid yourself, these men hated Jesus' popularity. And they wanted to take him down. So they wanted to bring this in front of him so he'd be confronted. This was the tension that was there. Now you've got this sick man on the Sabbath. What is Jesus going to do? And Jesus looks around with absolute brilliance, of course, and he answers the question that's unstated but just hangs in the air by asking them a question just very brilliantly. Watch the questions of Jesus. Watch the stories of Jesus. Very brilliantly, Jesus says this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, he puts them in a bind now, doesn't he? Because you have somebody who's obviously and overtly very sick right there. And he's saying, is it okay to heal this guy even though it's the Sabbath? And if they say yes, then they acknowledge that he is the one who interprets the law. He's the one who's right about the law. He's the one who has the right to say, I'll heal today if I want to heal today. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But if they say no, then they're gonna, then this poor man here is gonna go without healing, and he has a reputation for healing people. So he's very brilliant in putting them on the spot. But they kept silence. He silenced them. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox, that's fallen into a pit. By the way, some translations are some uh, New Testament Greek uh, um, uh, manuscripts say son in the place of donkey. You have, so maybe your Bible says a, a son or an ox or in this uh, donkey or an ox has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. If Jesus is saying to them, let me ask you a question. If you had a son or if you had a donkey, if you had an ox that fell in a ditch, would you not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? So now so far he asked them one question and they brought him to absolute silence. They brought him a second question here and they could not answer him regarding these things. They could not answer him regarding these things. No. So that's the setting. The setting in verses 1 through um, 4, through 6, the setting is, always remember when we deal with these stories of Jesus, they're always in a setting. They're always responding to that setting. They're answering implied or stated questions in that setting. Or they are responding to the crisis or the question that comes up in that setting. That's always that way. And here now you, what you have is that Jesus is traveling toward Jerusalem. Gary Burge says, it's common for Jesus to tell stories that inspired a crisis or even a confrontation. In other words, he tells stories sometimes out of the crisis or confrontation. He tells stories a lot of times to create a crisis or confrontation, which he commonly does. He wasn't afraid to raise the tension in a conversation if he felt that a person's motives were hollow or dishonest. He insisted with marked regularity that lies frequently needed examination. Motives needed to be unmasked. And our reasons for being religious people need to be understood. 
In Luke 13 and 14, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem after a lengthy ministry in Galilee. He's on his way to Jerusalem. You see that verse 22? He went through the cities and villages. This is chapter 13 and verse 22. He went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Journeying. This is not just tucked in there. With, with no reason. We're given this is the direction that Jesus is going. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going for a very significant purpose. And on his way to Jerusalem, as he approaches, as he's been around these villages, he's been healing, he's been teaching, he's, he's growing popularity. This is what Gary Burge uh, says then to that. As he approached the city, he began to have increasing contact with Jerusalem's religious leadership. These were men who had heard about his reputation as a popular village teacher. As scholars, they knew he didn't have formal training and had had his reputation for questioning the authorities. By now, it was well established. Jesus, by the way, wasn't the rebel here. They were the rebels. Jesus is the king. So if he questioned their authority, he had every right to do that. So don't say you're like Jesus if you go around questioning authority all the time. Unless you are Jesus and you're an authority. You see what I'm saying? Don't, don't give in to the nonsense that Jesus was some kind of a disenfranchised rebel. He was not. He's the king of the universe. He's the speaker of the law. Everyone conforms to him. He doesn't conform to them. It's like the umpire. It's like the old umpire that said, it, it, it ain't until I call it. That's the way it is. So all who were there were there at this feast by or this at this um, dinner by invitation, and it was one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And it's really kind of important if we're going to understand what this little what this little story is about that we haven't even read yet. We understand that we understand that this story was spoken to those to those Pharisees and those that had gathered there in this setting where he was kind of on trial. What we're going to notice is interesting here is that. You, maybe you've heard that little uh, poem, he, that, that, that he is the unseen guest at every meal, right? He's the silent listener to every conversation. He's the unseen guest at every meal. Well, there, if you, the more you study the Bible, the more you see in it. And there's this irony here in this story. They're inviting Jesus to the meal so they can watch him. We're going to check him out. We're going to see what he's all about. We're going to judge him. But Jesus was watching them. Jesus was evaluating them. Jesus was the ultimate judge. He was watching them. And that's what it says there in verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed, when he noted how they chose the best places. In other words, Jesus was at the meal, and he was, they were watching him, but he was watching them. And one of the things that Jesus noticed is where they went to sit when they got there. It was the religious peacock show. Everybody's trying to jockey themselves into position to get the favored place. They were like religious ecclesiastical ball hogs. Give me the ball. I'm taking it down the lane. I'm going to the net every time. I don't care if we win or lose. As long as everybody thinks I'm wonderful, this is the way they were. And Jesus saw that in them. Their religion was a real show. It's what he saw in them. They're watching Jesus, but he was watching them. And some people would say the story that is going to follow here, this little story about where you sit, is really only about whether you is, is about table etiquette where you sit, but I think it's deeper than that because I think the stories all would go together, and because I think they go in ascending weight. When you get to the last story, it is clearly a story about the kingdom. 
When you look at verse 13, you see that this first story that he tells elicits a question, which is clearly, or the second story elicits a question, which is clearly about salvation. So in other words, this story isn't just about how you behave at the table, although if you're a Christian, you sure should behave at the table. And that's what it's saying, really. But, but it's about a lot more than that. It's, he's beginning to get his foot in the door here about, are you really saved or are you a religious hypocrite? Did you really invite people to the banquet because you love people or because you like people to be in debt to you? Like when you take me out for breakfast and I go, I'll buy because I want you to owe me later. Which, by the way, I frequently do. You know, that's just a, I like to have people owe me breakfast in case I'm ever, you know, need a, need a breakfast and I don't have any money. Then I'm like, wait a minute, I know. Chris Bonesteel owes me breakfast. I'll call him and say, hey, you want to go to breakfast? And then he'll think, yeah, I guess you bought last time. This is not true. It's apocryphal, isn't it? But anyway, I'm sure he would buy me breakfast, and so would you. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm a pastor is so I get a lot of free breakfast. These guys, they asked people to come to the banquet, not because they cared about people coming to the banquet, but because they wanted a lot of people to owe them. So you've got people here, these religious leaders that are jockeying for the best place at the table. The leader who invites people to the meal because he wants people to be socially obligated to him. And then the last story that he's going to tell in Luke 14, we'll study, we'll talk about that when we get there. I guess I need to read this story. Let's look at the story now. Verse 8. Now, you understand, you're going to understand this story better now that you've heard the setting. When you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you should be invited by him. And he who invited him will come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go to sit down in the lowest place so that when he who is who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Verse nine, shame. Verse 10, glory. And then he gives a proverb. And this is very common. Notice this about Jesus teaching techniques and use them yourself. Um, Ask questions. Tell stories. And, and arrange your truth together in Proverbs, in pithy sayings that are pleasant to the ear, sweet to the ear, that kind of give the truth in a kind of a slogan kind of a way, in a kind of a bumper sticker kind of a way, in kind of a proverb way. This is what Jesus did. His stories, he would, he would set the scene for a story by asking questions. He then would tell a story. And he frequently somewhere in there, in this case he does, he gives a proverb. He summarizes the story in an axiom or in a proverb. And that's what he says here. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It's almost poetic. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And then verse 12. Then he also said to him who invited him. He had a story for him. So he had a story for the guests that were jockeying for position. He had a story for the one who invited him. Now, this would have been in your face. This would have been grab your throat. This would have been throw iced tea in your face, right? He says directly to the guy who invited him. Now, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid in the resurrection of the just. And I miss spoke myself earlier when I said verse 13. I meant verse 14. This is where Jesus now introduces the eternal element in the story. Up until this point, it could be seen as just table manners. But now he says, you'll be repaid in the resurrection of the just. And then one of the guys 
quickly raises his hand and he says, hey, isn't it going to be something to be at that banquet? Because we're all going to be there. That's kind of what he says. It's going to be great. We're all going to be there, right? That's kind of what he says there in verse 15. When one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, which was in a Jewish kind of idiom way of saying, we're all of us that are saved certainly are blessed, aren't we? This is a really critical piece right here. This past, this verse is the, is, the, is the kind of the anvil all of these stories turn on. This guy's question when he comes up and he says, aren't you, isn't it just good to be saved? Isn't it good to be righteous like us? Isn't it wonderful to be among those that are going to be at the real banquet someday? And Jesus kind of looks at him and goes, maybe, maybe not. If you are really righteous, why are you so proud that you're involved in this religious peacock show? What is your religion all about, Jesus is saying? If you're really righteous, then why is it that your invitations to the banquet aren't really about what they're supposed to be about? And then going to be, there's going to be this story, the main story that makes this very clear last. Well, the central truth here, I think, is very clear. Genuine faith is always accompanied by humility. If you say you know the Lord, there will be the evidence of humility in your life. If you really have the life of Christ in you, you'll be characterized by meekness. I don't know what this has been like for you, but this series of messages on the stories of Jesus has been very heavy for me. It's been very convicting. It's like every one of them gets to me. I have to, I have to do this all week. I have to think about this all week long. This grinds on me all week long. And then I have to talk about it at the end of the week. Some of these I don't want to talk about. When it's all over, I go, can I skip this one? Because it's way too autobiographical. I see me in this. Do you see yourself in these things? My father, a pastor, would go off to the pastor's meetings and he would sometimes return from the pastor's meetings and tell me stories that were very painful for me to hear. To this day, I cannot go to a pastor's meeting without thinking about and seeing my father's face and listening to the tone of his voice when he returned from meetings with other pastors in which he was not in any way encouraged. Part of this might have been himself, he would be quick to say. But part of it was because there was a religious peacock show going on. And one guy was trying to step on the neck of somebody else to show himself in the name of Christ that he was holier or more wonderful or more of a leader. Or this is not a this is not the religion of the Bible. And that's what Jesus was trying to expose here. And this is what the Pharisees often were about. Let me give you an example in Matthew 23, Matthew 23. And Jesus spoke very candidly, very, very specifically, very sharply about this. Um, but all their works, he said, all their works they do. This is Matthew 23, 5. All their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places, the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. Greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Isn't that interesting? I always noticed that we generally pick on Roman Catholic people for calling the priest father, but we have our own titles now, don't we? And we like those titles, and we like those honors, and we like those privileges. And if we're not careful, what can happen is, even while we're followers of the meek and lowly Christ, we can use our religion to make ourselves look better than other people. We can use our religion to put our foot on the neck of somebody else to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Why do you do the religion you do? 
Is it because you want to get what you want? These guys were involved in religion to get what they wanted out of it. What they wanted was honors and privileges. They wanted to be the popular ones. They were using religion for that purpose. And we do the same thing frequently in the same way or in other ways. One of the worst kinds of pride there is, is religious pride. And there are reasons for that. Pride is a sin that can thrive in a religious environment like mold in the basement of your soul. Pride is a sin that can thrive in a religious environment. Sometimes you can be like given a better job because you're so good at it. You know, pride is subtle. Pride can be disguised. Pride is a basic kind of worldliness. Remember when the first first John, where there's this description of worldliness, um, the, 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 the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Pride is worldliness, even if it's religious pride. Pride is worldliness just as bad as the guy who goes out and hangs a drunk on on Saturday night. And we would be scandalized, wouldn't we, if he said, well, I'm a leader. What do you mean? You went out to a bar and got drunk last night and you're telling me you're a leader? The Bible forbids that. And yet you could come and you could be a part of the religious peacock show. You could make yourself look better than other people because of the things that you've been able to avoid or the things that you've been able to do. And you don't think that's worldly, but it is worldly. The boastful pride of life is every bit as worldly, maybe even more subtly worldly, than going out and getting drunk or being involved in some horrible thing like fornication. That's what the Bible says. The pride of sin, the Bible says, that God will quickly judge. And you want to ask yourself, is the mold of pride growing on my soul? I'm rounding third. I'm heading for home. Listen to this. I want to give you some, like, diagnostic aids here. Look at yourself and ask yourself, is this true about me? And I want you to know that these are being continuously applied to myself in a great painful way, I will say. But ask yourself these questions as I've asked myself and continue to ask myself these questions this week. And ask yourself if the mold of pride is growing on your soul, especially this religious version of it. Do you ever jockey for position or insist on honor or consideration involved in any kind of religious ball hogging? Then we know that the mold of pride is growing on our soul. When we cannot serve without recognition, then we know the mold of pride is growing on our soul. When we resent it when other people are honored and we find it hard to show respect to other people, then we can be sure the mold of pride is growing on our own soul. When we're reluctant to admit wrong because we want to look like we're not wrong, or when we minimize or blame or excuse, then we know the mold of pride is growing on our soul. Do any of you here have that problem? See, you don't even want to admit it. Um, when we, uh, It's true, though. It's true with all. The first thing we do when we sin is we, we, we say we didn't do it. And then when the, good, when the evidence is so obvious, then we say, well, you would have done it too if you're married to that witch, you know, that I'm married to. Uh, you know, a person might say that, you know. Or, or if you're married to my husband, you would have done if you If your kids did to you and my kids do to me, you'd be the same. What, you, what are you doing? You're blaming so, And they, we're really good at this. That's an evidence of pride. The mold of pride growing on your soul. You don't just honestly say, I was wrong. When we are, we re, when we are reluctant to admit wrong or we minimize or blame or excuse, then we can be sure the mold of pride is growing on our soul, even if we are very religious people. When we're not willing to ask forgiveness, we're not willing to honestly ask forgiveness, then we're in real danger because we sin 
and the mold of pride is growing on our soul. When we kind of believe we've got to just pretend we didn't do anything wrong so that we don't lose our footing, our position. We will not submit to delegated authorities without resentment. We say, God, I'll obey you, but I won't obey the people that you sent to lead me. Then the mold of pride is growing on our soul. Young people, I just I love you. I say this in great love and tenderness and humility to you. As hard as it is, if you say, I love God and I will obey him, but I will not obey my dad. And there's always that whole big thing that comes because my dad is this, that, and the other. As if because your dad is this, that, and the other, you have a get-out-of-jail-free pass and you don't have to obey God. You're the exception to the rule. You're in serious trouble. And we've got old-timers in the house that would say amen to that if it didn't hurt so bad. It's so that I can't say... I'm a humble follower of Jesus, but I don't do what people tell me to do. <laughs> I'm a humble follower of Jesus. This came to me in Sunday school class this morning. I got a cruise. I know I'm I, I, Sunday school class. I was thinking about Phoebe in, in, in Romans 16. And I thought to myself, if Paul told me to do what Phoebe told me to do, how would I feel about it? Yeah, isn't that the way it is? Like, she's a girl. I'm like, you, would you say that again? Because I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I heard that right. In, in, in Romans 16, it says, whatever Phoebe needs, you know, give her, give her what she needs, help her out. I'm like, that's not how I'm wired. I'm just, maybe that's a, a shocking revelation to you. I'm just kind of being honest here. I don't like girls telling me what to do. But there are some circumstances where it might be where a girl tells you what to do, right? You have a mother? Do you have a mother? I'm going to tell you what to do. And you can't say, I obey God, but I don't obey my mother. Well, really? Because God has a different opinion about that. And you are proud. You're proud. And a mold of pride is growing in your soul and it's going to take you down. Humble yourself. And it's not just kids. I'm not picking on you guys. It's all of us where we kind of want to have honors and we do have that temptation and want to be respected, we want to be honored, we want to have privilege, we want to have titles, we want to be the one who decides, we want to have the final opinion, it's my decision to make. And when we find ourselves always, I will decide, I will decide, mold of pride is growing. I know when that happens to me, mold of pride is growing on my soul, God will faithfully come along and afflict me. <laughs> I can count on it happening. When we hold out on God in some area, some point of pride, that's what we call it, right? Why aren't you baptized? Don't understand that. The Bible says, Jesus says, I want all my followers to be baptized. And you go, well, I love him and I'm humble, but I won't be baptized. I don't understand. I don't understand how you can do that and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. I say this in love and kindness. You must be baptized if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to be. If you won't be, then we know there's a problem. Mold of pride is growing on your soul. And so just humble yourself and it'll be beautiful. Humble yourself into the water. Like Naaman the leper, he comes up clean, right? You say, he says, this is what I want you to do. Seven times in the Jordan. You were at the Sunday school. That's a wonderful story, isn't it? I'm just telling you, for, I think in our, in our congregation, there are hundreds of us here today. And, and it's more than just ones who have delayed on baptism. There's probably an area in almost every one of our lives that's a point of pride that we go, I am just not going to do that. Or we don't say it that way, but we just aren't. It's, we're just not. I won't forgive that person. I won't do that thing. 
I won't serve in that area. I won't talk to that person. I won't be under this regulation, you know. And that's where we stop in our Christian progress. And we can sit there for years without growing. We can sit there for years. But beyond that is a blessing from the Lord. Something very wonderful and special. I don't say this to hurt you. But you know, this is the, this is the cold water in the face truth. And that is where Jesus says to do something and we say no. Or when he sends a delegated authority with the Bible in hand to say this is what Jesus says to do. And we say maybe I'll do that later. It's like saying no. And you're kind of done now. You're done. And so... Um, Let me, let me read a couple of more here. When we think we're not proud because we're not arrogant, then the mold of pride is going to our soul. You know, there's some pride and arrogance. This is my little personal definition I've let's observed over the years. Some people are really socially sharp people. You know, they're just emotionally, socially, they're intelligent, they're sharp, and they can come off not looking proud. So they're not arrogant. Arrogant people are so ignorant that they look proud. And you just see it. They don't pop out their chest and they talk smack. And they're just like, what in the world? They're just arrogant. And a lot of us that have a real serious problem with pride look at people like that and go, well, I'm certainly glad I don't do that. In other words, I'm smart enough to hide. Or I think I'm smart enough to hide my pride. So I'm proud, but I'm not arrogant. Like, you notice I put myself in that category, which means I might be arrogant and only think I'm proud. These are the kinds of things you kind of want to go before the Lord and say, Lord, help me on this. If we think we're not proud because we're not arrogant, if we cannot suffer without retaliation, if we hold out on God in some area of obedience, if we don't surrender our rights, if we insist on making the final decision... Real quick, and I know, like I say, you're, you're the, let's say you are the final decision in your home. You're the father. You're the dad. And you're, you've got to answer the Lord, not your wife. You have to answer directly to the Lord for the decision that you make. You've taken her counsel. You've listened to her. Children have their opinions, whatever. You're going to answer. You say, I'm the final opinion. Now, just be careful, because what you can say is you can say, I will make this decision. This is mine to make. It's not quite right. It's not quite right. It's kind of, yeah, but not really. You see what I'm saying? It'd be like if you, if you say, I'm the dad, I will decide what we're going to do. Does God give you the right to decide what you're going to do without showing deference to your wife? Does God give you the right to decide what you're going to do without weighing the different uh, circumstances and, and listening to counsel and looking in your children's eyes? And is it not wise sometimes, many times, to say to your wife, sweetheart, this one, I want you to tell me what you want me to do. What do you think? And even sometimes to a child, what do you, what do you guys want to do? And I'm not saying that you give away matters of principle and, do, and, and, you, and you shirk your responsibility to obey God as a father by blaming your kids for something. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, is not it, is it not pride when I just quickly default to, look, I'm the boss around here and this is what we're going to do. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's pride. Here's what the Bible says, and this is a final one. And I know you were looking forward to me reaching that. We hesitate or refuse to put ourselves under the word of God but we follow our natural inclinations, what we think is right or how we feel, and we don't have biblical basis for it. No clearer or more dangerous evidence of pride in the world than when a person sets himself over the Word of God. This is what the Bible says in Isaiah 66, too, for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one thing I will look, 
In other words, he says, I made everything you see, but this is the thing that I look on with favor. He says, on him who is poor and of contrite spirit who trembles at my word. Don't you want to be that guy? God, I would be poor and contrite spirit and tremble at your word, not a part of the ecclesiastical peacock show. I hope that what I've said to you is helpful here today. I had a lady come to the church once many years ago, and I know some of what I said was, by the way, very, very direct. It was not personal. It was not personal. But it may be from the Holy Spirit to you personal. I seriously wasn't like aiming at anybody personally at all. I'm just saying this. A guy, gal came to our church one day. A fellow came to our church a doctor many years ago. And he, and he said, I want you to call on my mother and my dad. And I went and called on the mom and dad, and they were not interested at all. And in, in the next room was a young woman wrestling with a boy that was just out of control, hyperactive or whatever you want to label. You know, kid was all over the map. She couldn't even come in the room. She listened to me talking to her mother, who was pretty much effectively rejecting everything I said. And just as I got ready to leave this frustrating call, she came out of the room and her eyes were like full of questions and help me. She had help me eyes, you know, help me. What would you do with a boy like this? And can you help me? And I invited her. I remember sitting in my study when that little Ford Escort pulled up outside. I heard it run and I looked out the window and there was Jane and her two little kids. No husband, just her and her two little kids. And she's wrestling this kid in who is super hyperactive, probably going to be a great pastor someday, and, his, and her daughter, and just like wrestling them into church and put them in the nursery. I remember that she put them in the nursery, and one of the ladies in the nursery came to me, and she said to me, hey, you got to do something about that kid. You know, after a few weeks, I was really concerned about this lady coming to know the Lord, walking with the Lord, and the, and the nursery said, you got to do something about that kid. And I said to the lady real nicely, I said, we're not going to do anything about that kid right now. Just put up with him. Whatever happens, just put up with him. And she was gracious enough to do that. And eventually we saw her and Lois were talking. And after church, she'd come a number of weeks and had determined to walk with the Lord. And she's with Lois and some of the ladies in the room and just crying her eyes out. Her husband that she lived with was an unbeliever. He had alcohol in the home and she was grieved about all of that, you know, and and then she's over there crying. I'm like, what's that about? You know, and finally I got to the bottom of it. Her, she, her husband, she had left her husband. She just had enough, you know. She just had enough. She took the kids and went to mom's. She just left. And she came to church and now she's all brokenhearted. And I thought, well, I need to go talk to her husband. And I remember calling him on the phone. I'd called him a number of times. He was just resistant guy. Nice guy in a lot of ways. Just resistant, you know, not ready. And I'd call on him a number of times. He hadn't come to church and... So I, late that night on Sunday night, after everything was all over with, I thought I'm going to give him a call and see if I can help him somehow. By the time I called him, he was broken. He's a broken guy, humble. Kind of story unfolded like this. He said, I was getting ready to take my life. As he's often had the spirit of life, getting ready to take his life. He said he was home alone, of course, because his wife had taken the kids and left him. He said he, the TV was on in the other room and he wasn't watching it. And in the providence of God, it happened to be <laughs> Charles Stanley. Yeah. And he said, you know how Charles Stanley preaches and he will go, you ever heard him? He goes, listen, listen. You ever hear that? Notice he has that little quality. Listen, listen. He said, Gary said, when he walked by the door, he heard Charles Stanley go, listen, listen. Made him stop. He looked through the door. And he said, then Charles Stanley pointed his 
finger at the TV, you know, point his finger at the camera, right in his face, and he said, your problem is pride. Your problem is pride. And God just broke his heart right then. What a wonderful work that God did in Gary's life. What a friend he's been to me. What a dear man. Not a perfect, but a work in progress, but a wonderful work that God did. When he came to that point where he heard the Lord saying to him, your problem is pride. And this morning, for many of you, that's the only thing to stand between you and something very, very wonderful. Heavenly Father, I pray today you be with the folk now as they go their ways. As we dismiss them in the name of the Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would do a work in them. Cause the invitation to happen in their own souls, I pray. And I ask this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.